Hi, everyone. I'm Timothy Martin, and welcome to this week's episode of GFOA's Finance Fridays. I can't tell you how excited we are to bring you today's guest. Over the next hour, we are going to share a remarkable individual whose apparent effortless determination and laser focus on goal setting and creating a personal plan will leave you in awe of his accomplishments. Oh, and did I mention, he's talking to us just days before his 30th birthday. Kevin Bain grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, embracing his diverse community. Described by family as a fearless child, Kevin overcame an early speech impediment to excel in school in both academics and athletics. His parents would raise their children with an understanding of, your reward is that you do well, and do well he did. As a competitive diver, you will hear Kevin articulate how the sport shaped his drive. As a diver, you can't have an ounce of doubt, he says. Third in state, check. National diving champion in college, check. Study abroad, master multiple foreign languages, two years trading on Wall Street, graduate school at Harvard, a job at World Bank, check, check. Check. Well, you get the idea. Fortunately, the acquisition of wealth is not what drives him. When it came time to ask what's next, Kevin returned to his community of Detroit and a job in the public sector, fully committed to tackle the issues of poverty and discrimination in a city that filled the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. We sat down with Kevin days before he embarked on a trip to Antarctica to complete a bucket list of visiting all seven continents. Impressed? Let's jump right in. So, Kevin, you're in Detroit working now after some time on the East Coast, West Coast. Uh, let's talk about that journey from the beginning, because you, you grew up as a child right around Detroit. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I'm from Dearborn, which borders Detroit, and it's the headquarters of Ford Motor Company, uh, which is really its claim to fame. Uh, so I grew up right next to the city. It's changed a lot since I was a kid, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, but it, it was a really great place to grow up in southeastern Michigan. I think one of the funny things to note that a lot of people don't know is that Dearborn is the, has the highest population of uh, Muslims in the U.S., and then Detroit's obviously one of the blackest cities. So especially when I've spent time on the coast, people are always kind of assuming that I'm from a very white place being the Midwest and actually I'm from an incredibly diverse place uh, which contributes to a great place growing up you know I played soccer with Arabic kids who celebrate Ramadan uh, I had great access to restaurants if you ever visit don't be surprised I have great Mexican food and great Middle Eastern food uh, so yeah, I grew up here and I'm happy to be back, but you're right, I did spend a lot of time away. So, I mean, obviously a lot of diversity in Detroit. What years did you grow up there as a child and, and, and what was that like? Because we've all seen, uh, you know, headlines throughout the years in Detroit and how that, that city's gone through a pretty big uh, transition from, from bankruptcy and, and all, all types of other things. When did you grow up there? Yeah, so I, I grew up here in the 90s and the early 2000s, so really on the decline of the city. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but the city of Detroit was actually the fourth largest city in the country in the 50s and had higher per capita incomes than New York. So we really hit a heyday uh, and then declined from there for, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, you could take any one of those reasons and write an entire novel on it. Uh, white flight, institutional racism, uh, investment in the suburbs, and on and on. Uh, so I grew up here really as it was getting close to the bankruptcy, which contributed to why uh, I didn't spend a lot of time in downtown Detroit growing up, really only came down here for sporting events. And uh, for those who follow Detroit sports, uh, like the Lions, you know that even those aren't so great to watch all the time. And we did have the Red Wings. So hockey, we, we won the Stanley Cup a lot uh, when I was growing up. Uh, and I was here going to college at the University of Michigan during the bankruptcy, which was the biggest bankruptcy, municipal bankruptcy in history by a magnitude of four times. You, you think it would have been more impactful on my life, although I have to say I went to the University of Michigan and I was studying business uh, in accounting and finance classes, and we never once talked about it. And so it was really interesting how 
even being so close, we weren't really engaged with Detroit, which is a real uh, opportunity loss. Of course, it had impact on my life uh, in, in less obvious ways, like during the Great Recession and the auto recession, being a Michigander was, was very challenging. We had a lot of economic hard times. Uh, but so, so I guess I was kind of a cure d- during the worst of it. Uh, was that was that something that you were as a kid? You said you didn't go downtown a lot as a kid. Was it something you were aware of as a kid? Was it something your parents talked about or or what? You know, when you're a child, you just accept things for as they are. So my vision of a city was uh, a, a high crime rate, uh, abandoned buildings, and not a lot going on in terms of restaurants. So it's it's funny because as a kid, I never thought I, I liked the city. Uh, but like in general, I never had an interest in visiting cities. Uh, and, and so it's not, it, it, you, know, you know, as I said, white flight was one of the reasons Detroit came to what it was. And that, that was my family story. We, we were the white flight. My, uh, my grandpa worked at a bank downtown and my dad worked in a, a, a big building called the Renaissance Center downtown. My mom worked at a historic building called the Penobscot. Uh, and I had a lot of family history in Detroit, and we all kind of left. Uh, and so we, we are kind of part of that contributing story uh, that, that was the reality. And, and what was, you know, talk about you as, as, a, as a growing up. What were you like? What was your experience like away from what was going on in Detroit, kind of in the, in, in the household? Yeah, I'm, I'm the third of four kids. Uh, so I was always doing whatever I could to get attention. Uh, I was very fearless. Um, my grandma likes to tell a story of me taking me to the playground was just the scariest thing for anyone because I would climb not on the slide, but on the roof of the slide and just jump off of it. And I would climb up the swing set, the chains on the swings and, and walk across the top of the swing set. So I, I, was, always, I was always really fearless and I ended up being a diver in high school and college, a uh, platform diver, like on the swimming and diving team where you're jumping off of the diving boards, uh, not the underwater diving kind of thing. Uh, so, so I had a lot of energy, but I was also very studious. I loved school. Uh, so I, I, I loved really every subject. Um, and, and so I kept myself pretty busy. I mean, I was either running around terrifying everyone or, or working hard on my homework. You know, some people you'll ask, you know, did you love school? Yeah, it was okay. Not in light school. I mean, you, you're, you're telling us you love school, every single subject. Like what, why is that? Or, or what made that such a great experience for you? Yeah, you know, I, I really did always like school and all my different subjects. Uh, I remember like when I was in third grade, I was studying for a history test or a social studies test, I guess is what that subject's called at that age. And um, I thought I had I finished studying and my mom opened the book and started asking me the most random questions, like the vocab questions and the margins and asked if I knew the answer to that one. And of course I didn't because you don't, you don't know the answers to all the little tiny things. But so I, I think she was just trying to uh, distract me because we were in a doctor's office that it really informed my study habits for the, for the rest of my life because I would, I would try to know every single thing Uh, I also had a really bad speech impediment. And so I think that drove me to read a lot more and and be focused in school. At that age, you don't have to really give presentations all the time. So having a speech impediment didn't impede me from doing well in school and I could write and read. Uh, So while I was figuring out how to speak English well and so people could understand me, uh, school was easy to dive into and enjoy. Was that something that, you know, was a challenge for you to overcome or is that something that you kind of dealt with? You know, did you, did you have kids making fun of you because of that? What, what was, what was, what was that like? Yeah, thankfully I, I went to a pretty small Catholic school for elementary school. I went to public school later on. Uh, but so I had a very small group of people around me who all could figure out what I was saying. And every year when we went to the new teacher, they would basically translate for me until that teacher could understand what I was saying. Uh, so I, I honestly never graduated from speech therapy. When we moved to a different city, I just 
took myself out of it because I was too embarrassed. I didn't want to have to go into a new school and we worked on it at home. Uh, and by that time, I just really struggled with the letter R, but mostly I had, I had overcome it. So, so basically, I really, I don't even know if I did overcome it. I mean, I think I talk fine now, uh, but, but it was a challenge for me. And one of the interesting things is uh, I was always really interested in foreign languages. I think I thought maybe another language would be easier. But when I was even five years old, I would take out just random books um, from the library, how to learn Spanish, how to learn French, how to learn Japanese. Um, I actually never learned any of those languages. So, so that didn't work out so well, uh, but it, it kind of informed my interest in, in other things. So, you know, you told us about, uh, you know, sports in school, you, you clubs, you had, uh, I guess, part-time jobs. You all, you know, you also mentioned it, it, when we were um, getting some information before the podcast, you're straight A student. People asked you, how, how did you get homework done? How did you get homework done? I mean, with all those things going on, what's the method to getting the homework done and getting straight A's? Uh, honestly, I, I don't even know who that person was anymore. It's like some other robot. It, it could, could not have been me. Uh, I, I was very driven. But, you know, I said I, I really liked school and I really liked diving. And so I everything that I do and I still do, I follow the same kind of mantra is I basically only do things that I like. I really try not to do anything I don't like. Uh, I've in, I mean, I've still I'm almost out of my 20s. I'm turning 30 soon, but I've had, I don't even know, five jobs in five different cities in different careers. So if I kind of realize I don't like something, I move on. And so with school, thankfully I liked all my subjects. Once I got into college, you get to be more focused and I still liked the subjects I chose. Uh, and, and, and I think I've always got energy out of enjoying myself and, and, and being something I, I like to do. I don't really, um, I sacrifice in terms of how much time I put into things. I don't like to sacrifice in terms of putting energy into something that is boring to me or just not enjoyable. Well, we appreciate you putting the energy into doing the podcast here with us. Today. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you. So, um, you know, you, you, you told us you, um, earlier um, in your questionnaire, you, you siblings very successful. To, and you, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, here on, on the show, parents uh, were very successful. Was the expectation that, you know, you're going to grow up and be successful, get good grades, go to a good school and, 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 you know, set, set yourself up for, for a good future? You know, it was kind of the opposite of that. I really appreciated my parents' method. They really didn't put any pressure on us. Uh, they did like to sign us up for things to get us out of the house. So we, we tried a lot of different things and that helped. But mostly they, uh, you know, they never re rewarded us for getting, getting A's in school. And trust me, I tried I, <laughs> to get. So no some, allowance? Did you get an allowance? I got a small allowance for, for chores, but, you know, well below market rate. Uh, so, yeah, we, did, we didn't really get rewards. They never put pressure on us. They didn't say what they wanted us to do. Uh, and whenever we did well, which, as you said, I, I have very successful siblings. We've all done a lot of cool things. And we all, you know, got good grades and did well in sports. Um, they they never really rewarded us for those things because they would always say your reward is that you did well and you wanted to do well. So if you won or you got A's, that's your reward. Uh, which as a little kid, is a little bit annoying because my friends were getting, you know, $50 if they got all A's or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but, but as you, grow up I mean it's true because that is actually kind of part of the reason that I do things that I like because that that's my only reward is to enjoy what I'm doing and you mentioned uh, in Detroit uh, you know it being very diverse in the culture there was that kind of did you grow up in that did you see that was that around you yeah but again as I said it's you take everything as a given when you're a child so I did just grow up around a lot of diversity and to be honest I didn't even realize how diverse my community was until I left and went to, uh, you know, the East Coast, where people would kind of make that assumption that I'm from a very non-diverse, white dominant place. And I would look around and say, where I'm from is more diverse than, from, than here, and certainly more diverse than, you know, whatever 
prep boarding school you went to. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I don't know if I, I really realized that at the time, but it, it is really important to me now um, for so many reasons. And we'll, we'll get into that um, in a little bit when we talk about, you know, kind of where you are now in Detroit. Uh, I kind of want to stick, though, with those early years, high school finishing up. You talked about swimming uh, and, and, and diving and, and that experience, and that carried you right into college. You mentioned going to the University of Michigan and, and went there as a college athlete. Yeah, it, it was a crazy experience. I mean, honestly, so I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm the third of four kids. I was in high school and middle school during the Great Recession in a state dominated by the auto industry. And so my parents never really said it, but I felt like I could help our family by getting myself to college in some way. And so even though I was smart, a lot of people are smart and a lot of people get good grades. So I thought, well, maybe I can do athletics and get myself even further. And my family's very athletic. My mom actually still has a, a, a track record at her high school here. So, which has stood for, you know, 40 years now. I also have diving records, but, and they're, they're still standing, but that's, uh, I'm a long way from 40 years. So, so it's a lot to live up to. I want to go back to what you just said about, um, you know, the, the great, um, you know, what was going on in, in Detroit and how you felt like you could help your parents did, did that, I mean, did that directly impact them impact, you know, the paychecks coming home? So it wasn't the paychecks, but I was hoping I'd get, get myself to college. Um, and so I thought diving could help me stand out and it, it, it worked. I did get recruited to college. Uh, diving is uh, a small population sport. So if you're good at it, there's not a lot of competition. And I was, uh, yeah, I got third in states when I was a sophomore in high school. And then I just continued from there and, you know, did regional zones and nationals. I was recruited all over the country and I ended up at the University of Michigan, which is a great school, uh, great academics and great athletics. We won big 10 championships every year. I was there. We won nationals once. Uh, and so you, you know, it, it was really hard to be a college athlete. And I don't think people, not everyone thinks of college athletes as, as being, you know, they don't realize how hard it is because it's really hard to balance college with that. Uh, but it was, it was great for me. And, and it was able, I think, to help lessen some responsibility for my family to know I was, I was going on that. So, you, so how hard was it? I mean, give us some, you know, tell you, let us in on, on what, 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 what made that hard or, or what challenges did you face to be at the top of your game? Yeah. I mean, think about how many hours a week you work out right now. You know, the average person, I, I'm, I like to work out a lot. And I still think like maybe seven or eight hours a week. And, and, and that's a lot, an hour a day. When you're an athlete in college, it's 20 hours a week uh, plus competitions, plus getting to your facility and doing uh, physical therapy probably after practice because you have an injury. Uh, so all of those hours on top of also just going to college, I mean, it's insane. I remember when I first started my freshman year and I signed up for my classes and I had an agenda and I was plotting out my time. I had morning practice, six to 8 a.m., four days a week. And I had all my classes and then I had evening practice, four to 6 p.m. And I had my competitions. And everyone said, for every hour that you're in class, that's two hours of homework. And I'm adding it all up. And I'm like, there's, that's not enough hours. I mean, there's no way. Uh, and, and, you know, tr truly there almost was no way. But thankfully, you're around a community uh, of other student athletes who we all, none of us had enough time. And we would go from the pool to a really fast dinner to studying very late at night, uh, basically just getting enough sleep so that we could wake up from the next morning practice. Uh, we would be doing our homework in the airport terminals as we were traveling to the next competition. Uh, it, it was very, very difficult, but very, very rewarding. I mean, so happy I, I did and survived four years of that. 
And where was your mindset? You know, you're going through this, you're going through the, 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 the competitions, trying to, you know, get everything done, keep the grades up. I mean, were you thinking about after grad, after college? I mean, had you already kind of had something in your mind on, or or was was swimming, you know, you know, something you were thinking about long term, and and you know, who knows the Olympics? Yeah, I know the Olympics would have been so cool. Uh, I wasn't quite good enough, you know. Only two people from diving go to the Olympics, so it's really competitive. Uh, so, some of my friends went that, so that that wasn't exactly in my mind. I, I really wanted to help people. You know, I, like I said, I grew up in a, I grew up near Detroit. Uh, poverty was on my mind. I, uh, diversity was on my mind. So I wanted to help people. I also really wanted to leave. And so the foreign languages came into that. And my goal became to go help the poor, like the poorest people in the world, because I thought, well, what greater impact could I have than to improve the lives of the people with the hardest lives. Uh, and I might as well travel the world while doing that. So I set my mind on the World Bank and uh, that's what I studied for. Uh, and so I studied business as well as comparative literature, uh, which sounded like a weird combination, I admit. Um, I just like reading, so the literature is kind of fun, but the in comparative literature, you do two languages. So I use it as an opportunity to learn two different languages. I learned Chinese and German, which, Again, probably sounds like a weird combination, but think of me being from Detroit, uh, the auto capital, while other countries that are really important for the auto industry are Germany and China. Uh, and so there, there's a thread there, even if it looks weird. But you also study, I mean, you, you studied abroad in Beijing. I did, yeah. Um, I studied in Berlin after my freshman year. I studied in Beijing after my sophomore year, and that was particularly difficult. It was a, a immersive language program where we had to sign a vow to not speak or listen to English, only Chinese, although we could write in English. And I was there for the entire summer, uh, and my college coach was Chinese. He got uh, the bronze medal in the Olympics for China in the 80s and was a world champion. So he hooked me up with the diving team there. And uh, I, I trained with the a provincial Olympic diving team in China while also studying Chinese, which was a pretty crazy immersive experience. Uh, and then the following summer, I went to Shanghai for an internship. And you also uh, told us about a professor who kind of became a mentor and kind of guided you. And, you know, that was that toward the end of college as, as you kind of set your sights on what's next? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I mean, I think I was kind of like the typical hardworking student where I, I liked my subjects and I had this vague vision of what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what that meant. So I had a professor who uh, was, was the professor for international economics and business. And she had worked for the World Bank as an investment officer in different countries. And she told me about it, and which basically meant she would live in different countries at a time and she would work with their governments to help uh, identify opportunities for economic development. And a lot of times that meant small business incubators or maybe even investing in infrastructure or technology to support those, the local economy. And I thought that's gotta be the coolest job, like just go live somewhere in these really exotic countries and, and help them, uh, and help them with, with your business and economic mindset. You know, uh, and so she, she was a great mentor of mine. She connected me with other World Bank people who helped me kind of figure out how to, how to guide my path. You know, it's, it takes, uh, you, know, you know, not everybody is kind of able to or, or you know, willing to go around the world and, and help people. And, and, and you, you, you wrote to us a little bit about kind of developing a strong sense of, of, of confidence, ignoring fears and, and, and nerves along the way. How, how, did you, how did you do that? I mean, you, you, you competed, you had the speech impediment um, and, and you, 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 come, you obviously come across here as a very confident person. How did you, how did you, how did you get to that point? And, and how did you teach yourself that? Yeah, 
thanks for pointing that out. Um, You're welcome. You know, <laughs> I said as a kid, I was pretty fearless, but I, I contribute a lot of my uh, confidence to diving. It's, it's a really hard sport. Uh, I was a platform diver, which meant that I dove off of the 10 meter platform. That's 33 feet, basically the same as a three-story building. And, you know, you, you go up there. Not only do you have to jump off, which is terrifying enough, but you have to then contort your body into a very difficult trick and then hope that you land uh, in a way that doesn't injure yourself. And, and you can't get injured. So you're doing this really scary thing while people are watching you. And not only are they watching you, but they're judging you. And so it's a, it's a lot of pressure on you to confront a scary situation. And the thing about diving that I really take into my life is that you, when you are doing something so difficult and so dangerous, you have to be fully committed and you cannot have an, an ounce of doubt in your mind because as soon as you start that dive, as soon as your feet leave that platform and you're 33 feet above the water, which feels like concrete when you hit it, when you're going that fast, you need to be fully committed. Even if the second, one second before you, you make your attempt in that second, even if you don't think you can do this, you have to just totally forget that and you're committed because even if you actually can't do it, the, the best way to be safe and to make sure that you succeed is to just be fully committed. Uh, and, you know, it sounds extreme, but I totally take that into the rest of my life because in any situation, anything you're going to, if you have, if you're distracted by all your doubts and your fears, then it's only going to make it harder for you to succeed uh, you kind of just have to fake it till you make it and hope and, and believe in yourself, uh, which is a very cliche way <laughs> of saying it, but it does come, it really does come for me from that diving experience. So you've graduated college in your mind. What's, what, what's the plan? What's the, what, did you have a plan in place? Okay. I had a very detailed plan that embarrassingly I, I truly followed and I sound like a crazy person. I had a five-year plan. After that, it got murky. But my plan was I wanted to go work for the World Bank. Someone had told me, you either become an investment banker or a consultant, then you go to grad school, then you go to the World Bank. So I tried consulting. That's my junior year internship. I didn't really like it. And so then I tried investment banking. And luckily, I, I got a job at an investment bank. I went and worked for Citigroup in New York, having no experience in investment banking. I did that for two years uh, and then I had a third year at a startup, but that was really just me trying to have the time to apply to grad school. Went to grad school three years after I graduated my undergrad. I went to the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and did my master in public policy. And while I was there, I started working for the World Bank. And I, I kind of like stayed on that five-year plan trajectory. I hit it. Uh, later on, I changed my mind, but that was my plan and I did succeed at it. Kevin has run through that plan very quickly, but there are some, <laughs> some interesting stories to talk about in that plan that, that, yeah. that came about, and we will talk about those right after the break. And we're back with Kevin Bain, the debt manager for the city of Detroit. When we left the conversation, he had graduated college and was off and running on his plan that eventually got him to World Bank. But it started after college at Citigroup, and that was in New York City. And that was right, in, right on the floor of the stock market. Uh, that's got to be not an every, every but no, but a lot of people don't get to experience something like that, but you did. Yeah, it is a really uh, intense and kind of glamorous job. You know, there are movies about it, like The Wolf of Wall Street. But I think a lot of people have this vision of it, uh, which is it's not super far off. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was cool to be there. I mean, I was so excited when I got that job. Uh, it, it ended up being very, very hard, but, but I was definitely excited when I got it. You, you told us about, you know, kind of a, the way it kind of flowed sometimes on the floor. I mean, you could have two or three phones in your hand having conversations with multiple people at 
one time, well, I guess not at one time, but uh, well, I guess at one time, how do you, how do you juggle that? How does that work? Yeah, isn't that crazy? I, I mean, it was one of those things that it was my first job. So I just didn't really know what a normal job was like. So yeah, we had, we each had two phones so we could be on multiple calls at once. And sometimes we would have to borrow a third phone. And I, you know, I would have two headsets, one on each ear, and then I have a, like a third phone tucked underneath my shoulder and my neck, listening on another one. Uh, usually you at the analyst level were taking notes. So I didn't have to talk too much, but you were very careful about, about being on mute if you and unmuting the right one and you had to talk. Uh, but it was it was a crazy fast-paced environment. Uh, you know, the the two images, I guess, are the sales and traders, which are really like Wolf of Wall Street, where they're they're talking to investors and they're on the phones and they're yelling across the floor, uh, cussing at each other. And then there's the other side, the the investment bankers who are kind of like in their financial models, in their cubicles, never talking and working all night. And for better or worse, I was kind of in a hybrid group. So I during the market hours, I, I was on the, the trading floor and I did have my phone calls and I was I was yelling across the floor. Thankfully, I had a loud voice, which maybe that's why I stood out <laughs> at that well, job. Were you cussing across the floor? <laughs> I was too young. I was too junior. <laughs> but I definitely got cussed at. Uh, I never cried, but I did throw up once because I got yelled at so hard. <laughs> I mean, I, I can imagine that's just, I mean, you talk about, yeah, you talk about the movies and the pressure and how intense something like that is and competitive it is. I mean, do you have time to even, I mean, do you have time to breathe during the day? How long were the hours and, and, and what was your work? How did you balance, you know, away from work and work life? Yeah, I mean, the last question I was just going to throw out because there was no balance. I just worked. Uh, but it, it was very long days. I mean, especially when I had deals in the market and the reason I chose my specific group, which was debt capital markets, was that we had a lot of deals. So sometimes an investment banker, if they're more on the equity side, like doing IPOs, they'll have, you know, a couple a year. I had a couple a week, sometimes a day. And so I would go into the office and during those market hours when we were, had a live deal going, it was nonstop. And I mean, I would go 12 hours without leaving my desk uh, to use the bathroom or to even get a bite to eat. I kept water at my desk so I could survive, uh, but it was, it was really intense hours. And then when the market hours faded, I moved into my other project. So, I mean, we worked 80 to hundred hour weeks, which some people have really hard jobs. I think what made those, those 80 to hundred hours so hard was that I was just at my desk all day and all night working. It wasn't like I was going to meetings everywhere. I was, I was at my desk uh, and we would work late into the night. Uh, sometimes I would, I worked on international transactions. So I had times when I would get in at 3 a.m. to start a European deal that I'd have a U.S. deal uh, in, the, in our time that morning that I'd have a call about the Japanese market uh, later that night. Uh, I, I mean, it was, it was really insane. And how did you, I mean, how do you keep up on all those things? How do you like continuously learn about the job as you're in the job, really just nonstop working 24 seven? Well, that was a cool thing about my, my group that I did choose is that we actually were the source of information for a lot of our clients. So we, I did debt market. So I did investment grade bond issuances for the biggest companies in the world, people who do a lot of bond issuances. So anyone in government, I, I'm much more like a state or a big city and not like a small municipality. I mean, our clients were always doing bonds, which meant that they, they called us and they wanted to know what was going on in the markets that day and, and what that meant for them. And so I would have my phone out. I'm at the subway and in the morning, reading the news as much as I could. By 7 a.m., I was at my desk. I had a Bloomberg terminal, and I was looking at market updates. Uh, I was, I was read, looking at the market data. We had teams from around the world telling us about what happened in the European markets and the Asian markets, and we would digest it all, and we would send it out. So I was almost kind of like an economist, um, telling people what was going on uh, and how it was affecting uh, their credits. And so, so it was constant learning. It, 
Uh, I, I also had to learn financial modeling. I had to learn PowerPoint and all these great skills. But the learning part was, was a daily activity. You couldn't, that was, that was our job, which, which was a huge benefit. You know, I mean, it was hard, but I, I got what I could out of those two years. And you mentioned two years. Uh, you, you did you did you just have to quit that job? I mean, what, did it become too much, or what what took you away from there? I started off telling myself I would do two years uh, because it is a very hard job, but it is also a, a good job. Uh, I mean, it's a really great learning experience. You get paid very handsomely, and you get paid more and more each year. So I knew that wasn't what I wanted for my long-term career, and I didn't want to get sucked into it. And so I kind of had to drag myself out of it. I mean, I feel like I could have just kept going, and I did consider doing that. Uh, but then I really wanted to go to grad school, and I just didn't have the time to, I mean, look up application deadlines or testing dates, much less actually study for a test. Uh, yeah, you, so, were, you were sticking to your plan. You wanted to go to grad school because yeah. that was part of the original plan. That was the plan. And I, I would not deviate from that plan. <laughs> and, and so you went from there to San Francisco and what was in San Francisco? Yeah, so I, I joined a tech startup in San Francisco. I mean, I was really just desperate to get a job that wasn't investment banking and to get out of New York City. Uh, New York City is a, a great city. Uh, it was really fast paced and, and I just needed to relax. So San Francisco was kind of like my relaxa my relaxation oasis. Uh, and so I, I moved. I basically made a decision in a single day. And I went and joined this tech startup that did mobile gaming. And funny enough, I, I don't play mobile games. Uh, I not a, I don't have a great relationship with my iPhone. I don't know <laughs> how you guys are, but <laughs> not my friend. Uh, and I told I told them that, uh, but they just wanted like uh, a financial mind to come in. And you know, I can they probably did need one because they went under three months later. Not not because of me. <laughs> right, I tried not my because best. of you. <laughs> it was too late. Uh, so, I mean, when when that happened though, did you? Did that impact the plan? Did you, because as, as we've been talking to you throughout your entire conversation here, you're, you're a straight A student, athlete, great in school, great, you know, went um, high paying job, uh, stressful, but high paying job after college. You're sticking to this plan, quit that job, go to San Francisco and the startup goes, you know, goes up flops in, in three months. Mm -hmm. Was that, did you look at that as a, as a bad decision, as a failure, as a problem with the plan? What was your mindset when that happened? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, one, I did not think it was a bad decision, but two, I did think it was a failure. Uh, and honestly, a failure that I almost needed. I mean, I am someone who has my plan and my backup plans. So even when that company was going under, I was already taking my tests that I needed for grad school, the GRE, I had already started my applications and I had other ideas of what I could do, uh, but, it, but I did fail. I did feel that way. And people will say that, I mean, I remember I would say this in interviews and it was kind of a lie that I, I knew how to fail because I was an athlete, because athletes, when you're learning your sport, when you're, you know, you're developing your sport, you fail every day, you have bad practices or you lose competition. Losing a competition, is nothing like, you know, a, an entire company around you going out of business. So that and was you a, just and you quitting a job and going to that company. Three yes, before. yeah. So a very good is it job. fair to say this was like, at, you know, the biggest failure you've gone through in your life? Uh, up until that point, yeah, and maybe so far, I don't know. Maybe it'll be the biggest failure I ever have. That would be really great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, and I think I'm really actually kind of proud of myself for it. Uh, because I think a lot of people around me were looking at me and saying like, wow, he's never, he's never failed. He's never hit this hard. And what's he going to do now? Um, and it turned out I was resilient. You know, I had a good attitude. I was excited about grad school. Um, I had other ideas of what I could do. 
I ended up the very first day I sent my investment banking resume uh, to a bar. Like I just saw that they were hiring for a bartender. They called me immediately and said, did you mean to apply? I said, yeah, my start just went under. I, I don't really want to go back to another career. Like I, I'm going to go to grad school. And I started working at a bar as a bartender for a few months. I mean, uh, I'm just picturing this in my head. You, you on the floor of the stock exchange. Yeah. yeah. Then going to this exciting new journey in San Francisco. And then all of a sudden you're working, at, you're, you're pouring somebody drinks at a bar. Oh my God, this is the best part of my 20s. Honestly, it was so much fun. I did at one point have someone I worked with in investment banking come in because they were traveling for a, for a deal. And they asked me, um, you know, like, Kevin, are you okay? What are you doing? I was like, I'm great. Are you okay? You're still doing your best in banking. What's wrong with you? But I don't know, honestly, it's fine. I mean, I'm like, I ended up moving to DC for another job um, uh, at a at a school, a new school that was forming. They again kind of just wanted a business minded person to help with some stuff, and that was great. They moved me back out to the East Coast, and then it was a lot easier for me to move out to Boston for grad school. So went- everything worked out. Right. And, and the, I guess the plan, as we've talked about, kind of yeah. came to fruition with Harvard Kennedy School and, 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 and kind of going through that experience. How long were you there? I was there for a two-year program. It was amazing. I met just such smart and passionate people. Uh, I learned a lot, but, but the people was the biggest thing. And, and I got through most of it before COVID. The second half of my last semester was when the pandemic started. So I missed out on just that last part and, and our graduation was canceled. Uh, but I we had a mega graduation actually just a few months ago, May of 2022. Uh, so I count myself fortunate that I had most, most of the grad school experience and it was, it was just phenomenal. And then, you know, you reached the ultimate goal that you'd, you'd been working on for years, which was mm-hmm. going to World Bank and, 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 and that experience. When you went to World Bank, was that kind of like, uh, okay, this is, I mean, I, I made the plan work. I'm here and I'm ready to do this. And were you thinking this was a long-term, a long-term deal you were going to be, you know, working through? Yeah, I, I did kind of think that. I mean, I, I thought I had reached my dream. I was really excited about it. Uh, and, and I was gung-ho. I mean, I was going to start traveling the world and I got some of that at uh, the World Bank not the best place to work in a pandemic, which kind of helped me change my mind a bit. But once I got there, that was the end of my five-year plan. And as crazy as it sounds, I thought, well, what's the next five-year plan? And I didn't really know. Uh, when I started working, I, mean, I was doing climate resilient infrastructure in countries around the world. I worked on every continent. Um, and I loved it. But I also would think to myself, um, you know, Detroit could use this too. Uh, Detroit could also use these infrastructure investments, and the U.S. needs investments in climate resilient infrastructure as well as climate mitigation. Uh, so I began kind of wondering, well, actually, do I want to keep doing this in other places around the world, or do I want to kind of go home and, and work on it there? And, and, and was this kind of the first time you started to think about home? Because it sounds like to me when you left home and went to University of Michigan, you were not thinking about, okay, I'm going to be back working in Detroit one day. You, you had much bigger ambitions. Was it really at, at World Bank where you kind of started to feel that draw back to Detroit? Yeah, yeah. You know, it was a few things. I really never thought I would come back. And uh, part of that is just, honestly, I'm not that interested in cars and Michigan. That's a really big thing. So I just never thought there was much of a job for me. I'm also gay and in the Midwest, it's not super LGBTQ friendly. So it's much more comfortable to be in like a New York or a San Francisco or DC. Uh, but yeah, when I was at the World Bank in a combination of the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, the Harvard Kennedy School actually gives a lot of emphasis onto local governments as really being able to have a lot of direct impact, um, even more so than the international or federal level. So it was in my head. I wasn't really sure what, what direction I wanted to go. I certainly wanted to enjoy my time at the World Bank. Uh, yeah. And then the pandemic hit. And it kind of, I think for a lot of people, just changed uh, 
kind of what I was valuing at that time. And, and so you, you, you left World Bank. Um, was that a hard decision? Well, you know, it was a soft leave. So what ended up happening was in the pandemic, I decided to, to buy a condo in Detroit uh, rather than just keep paying rent in DC because we weren't doing anything and property in Detroit is really cheap. So I got this great condo and I thought, well, I'll do this for a year and I'll either go back, I'll keep working for a World Bank and we'll, I'll go back to DC or whatever country uh, or I'll keep, I'll stay here and I'll see. And what ended up happening was my boss became appointed um, head of the sustainability practice in Vietnam. So I got relocated to Vietnam. Vietnam is a beautiful country. I have no interest in working there at this time. And did you actually get you? Did you go? Did you relocate? You did no, not I never there. relocated. I did a 12 hour time difference for a while and, and worked at night uh, remotely. Um, and I just thought, you know what, this isn't, this isn't for me right now. Let me try to get a job with the city of Detroit. And, uh, and that's what I did. I mean, I really wanted to work in my time zone. That just seemed good, good for my health. The 12 hour time difference was, was really tough. So you come home, I mean, you'd already been living there obviously um, for a little while um, from, from, from working you know, on the East Coast, West Coast and all over the country. So you're back there, got the condo. Starting now in the public sector, where you've been mm -hmm. in private sector leading up to that, what did you learn along the way in, in your private sector work that you look back on and say, this really set me up to do what I'm doing now in the public sector? Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so, I'm so happy I started in private sector. I, I think it was just good for me. I mean, especially in finance. Where I was being an investment banker, especially at a great bank like Citigroup, uh, I had to learn so much about finance and, and not just the macro economic trends, but the very micro uh, technical financial calculations that most clients and governments have to outsource to a bank or to their financial advisor. So now that I, I work for the city of Detroit, uh, I can just do a lot of that work for us and I can assess our options and I can and I can just think in this different way that they don't always have a public sector finance officer being able to do. Um, and, 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 you know, I think it's just a, a great perspective to add to them. What I like about, it, I guess, the most is that I was new to the public sector. And so I was learning a lot about how governments worked but I also was able to bring in this very valuable skill set that let me kind of like shine on one level as I was really catching up on another level. And did you, um, you know, obviously you're very young in your twenties, new, you know, not, not that long ago, you were introduced to GFOA. Did you use some of the resources there? Cause you've already been involved in, in our, um, one of our committees and mm -hmm. kind of in the trenches there, did that help with the public uh, se sector work as well and, and kind of getting up to speed? Yeah, GFOA uh, was very helpful for me. You know, I think almost all of my colleagues are members of the GFOA. So as soon as I started, they signed me up for my membership and I started taking the different webinars uh, and looking at the materials and it really helped me in my transition. I mean, I mean, I'm, the capital planning one, I remember it was really helpful for me how, how to, to make your first capital plan. Detroit was not making its first capital plan, but I was. And so it really got me uh, up to speed. And so then, you know, I really enjoyed the resources. I enjoyed the GFR articles. And I ended up applying to be on one of the standing committees. Uh, I kind of thought I would be on the debt committee because I had that debt background, but actually I ended up on the capital planning and economic economic development committee, which is so much more fun for me because I'm kind of giving opinions while also learning. Uh, and so I've been working with uh, different people from, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I'm like working with people from all over the country on these really cool issues like ESG uh, and bringing the Detroit perspective and bringing the national perspective back to Detroit. Uh, so GFOA is 
actually helped me a lot in my job and I hope I'm helping GFOA a little bit at least. <laughs> so you started in Detroit as I believe associate debt manager, you've already worked your way up to, to debt manager, but this is not, at least from our conversation, this does not just appear to be a job for you. This is home, this is a city and a community that you really seem to care about. And it's, it's more than just about uh, eight to five, uh, getting the yeah. job done. And you've really kind of gone in and um, kind of, you know, tell us what it's, tell us, tell us about that. And you're, you, you know, what, what, ex, you know, what experiences you're having in the job, but also outside of the job and, 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 and what you've br brought to local government. I know that you, you, you've done some LGBTQ plus uh, work in the community and kind of started, started that up with the city that maybe didn't have it before. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so happy to be back in Detroit and working this just amazing community. I think I said earlier, you know, it's one of the blackest cities in the country. Uh, and so just in the moment right now where we are as a country, this seems like such an important place to be. Detroit's definitely on the up and on the revival. Uh, I love being in the debt management here. I know it sounds like such a technical role, but one of the really interesting things we're doing in Detroit that uses debt is we sold social bonds in 2021, and we're using those bonds to pay for the demolition of uh, abandoned homes. Uh, as we're not the only post-industrial city that has a lot of urban blight, whether that's abandoned factories or abandoned homes, but I think we have the most. And so we've been demolishing and rehabbing thousands of homes using municipal bonds, using these social bonds. And we believe we're actually the first city to do so. So I never thought like demolition is not my passion, but it's so important for us here in Detroit because these abandoned homes that are in neighborhoods uh, are contributing to crime. You know, they're used as hotbeds for crime and terrible things can happen in them. The, they fall down or they catch on fire and they can damage the homes next to them. Uh, not to mention just the aesthetics. Uh, getting rid of these abandoned homes or, or beautify the neighborhoods and raise property values and, and make them safer. And so it's so cool to not only be working on, on the finance, but having this impact, uh, talking to bondholders about the social impact, about the ESG uh, spin on it, but also seeing it in, in my city and seeing it in my community and, and people being so happy about it. Uh, and then, yeah, you mentioned the LGBTQ, that we did not have an LGBTQ group at the city of Detroit. And so I started that a year ago with a couple of my colleagues and it's, it's been an amazing experience. Uh, we've gotten a lot of support from the city and from the mayor. Uh, we passed the first uh, preferred pronoun policy at the city of Detroit. It's, it's an official policy that people are supposed to use their preferred pronouns and their email addresses. And we have that public so that hopefully other cities follow it. Uh, we raised uh, the progress pride flag, which is a new pride flag, new work that includes colors for racial minorities as well as transgender and intersex. Um, and we passed a resolution, we, we drafted a resolution for city council and they passed it, urging our state to uh, change the legislation to make it so that discrimination, discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity is illegal. Because right now at the state level, it actually is not illegal in the state of Michigan. We're one of uh, like only 18 states that don't protect um, the LGBTQ community. Um, so we're, we're doing really important work and it's, uh, it's funny to go from my finance job to my LGBTQ role, but it's obviously like I, I'm trying to make this a better place to live for everyone. Yeah, I mean, you're obviously you're very passionate about it. I mean, something like that, though, everybody has their different opinions on things and sometimes share those opinions. Has that been easy? Have you had to deal with any difficulties or overcome them and, and, and try to in this in this movement that you've been doing there? Yes, <laughs> you know, there there are all these people who just aren't ready and they're not informed. And so one of the things that we need to do, especially in this part of the country in the Midwest is that we need to have the conversations and we need to inform people. And we also can't just accept it as given, you know, we can't just accept that everyone is going to be okay uh, with these rights, even though these are our rights. Like uh, one of our police officers, uh, she's amazing. She's the LGBT liaison for the Detroit police department. And she uh, goes on communities and she educates people and helps protect, especially uh, trans women because there are so many attacks on trans women. 
And she says, we're not asking for special privilege and it's a shame that we have to ask for equality. And that's, you know, that's certainly true. Um, I do think in finance, I, I like to try to be an extra loud voice because I think it's really important to be visible and to be loud, especially in industries that that's not really the case. It is scary to go into an industry or a job where you don't know um, if there's going to be anyone else like you or if there's going to be people who accept you. Uh, and there are LGBTQ people in finance and same for any other marginalized community. There are disabled people, there are black people, there are uh, veterans, there are of course women, uh, but LGBTQ, you don't always see it. And people might kind of just not say anything about it. And I, I had that experience in investment banking. I had a gay boss and we did not connect at all. <laughs> he did not really give me any support. He did not try to be loud and didn't really make me feel welcome. So I think it's important for uh, people in marginalized communities to, to be loud for the sake that other people uh, feel comfortable and safe and, and will come into this, this industry. What was, was being gay something you had to deal with um, growing up from others and how they looked at you? And is that, did that help kind of shape you into, into what you're doing today? Well, you know, when you look at LGBTQ populations, the funny thing is that they often have higher outcomes on average, like higher academic outcomes and you'll and higher incomes. And you'll see that because, uh, you know, there's a part of the community that works really hard. Like if, while if you're afraid of being accepted, you're going to work even harder to be even better to protect yourself. But then on the other side, we have higher rates of suicide. We also have higher rates of poverty because the other part of the population, not everyone can be expected to work super hard. Some people just flounder. And so if you don't have that support and if you don't have a safe community, uh, you know, you kind of, it's almost like a, two, I mean, this is really simplifying it, but it's almost like two ways that you go. Like you ought to have a really hard time um, and, and have a hard time succeeding or, or you just work really hard. So I, I'm kind of just in that first camp I mean, I never really experienced anything atrocious, but of course I was uncomfortable. And I, because of that, I, I worked really hard. I mean, especially in athletics, you know, that's certainly a way uh, for gay men and gay boys to protect themselves by being a better athlete. All right. And so wrapping up this conversation, you've gone through some, you know, some, and you've told us some, some, you know, some some great stories about your journey and, and really kind of opened opened the doors and let us into that. Uh, you talked about the plans along the way, and and so is there your debt manager in the city of Detroit? Are you on mm -hmm. another? Is this part of another plan, um, or or wh where do you see yourself in the future? My plan right now is to work for a pretty long time in the city of Detroit. Um, or at least in this area and really try to be part of our movement because we are reviving a lot. And I'm very excited about that. I think I have a lot of uh, experience and skill sets I can bring like these, this financial skill set. Um, and so one thing that I think about is for us, the ESG movement is, could be really helpful for Detroit. We've already done a social bond. We need to do more in green infrastructure and environmental investing. So I hope that I'm able to bring uh, the background I have in the World Bank, as well as investment banking, to do more ESG investments in the city of Detroit. So, I mean, from my perspective, I'm here to stay in, in, in my home, and I want to be part of um, this city just becoming a, a better and better place to live. And hopefully getting more uh, finance officers and, 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 uh, to come and consider uh, working in, the, in this great place. Absolutely. And we look forward to seeing, uh, you know, the, the growth uh, that happens there in Detroit. As we wrap up all of our podcasts, we asked our ask our guests a couple of fun questions. So we're going to do that with you. Um, That's the scary part. <laughs> oh, no, not scary. Um, what was your favorite age so far and why? Um, you know, I say every year, my, my current age is my favorite one. And every year just keeps getting better. Uh, I'm 29. and Every year has been, been better than the last. I love where I am right now. And I'm turning 30 in three months. 
and I will be celebrating by going to Antarctica, which is my last yeah. continent. Well, that might be my, so that that would be my favorite age next. <laughs> I think that might lead into the next question, which is what's on your bucket list? I mean, I guess Antarctica <laughs> was on your bucket list. Yep, Antarctica's on my bucket list. Uh, I'm going with my partner and, and some of my family members. That's funny because my, my partner asked me this on our first date, what's on my bucket list? And I thought, I don't know, I'm, I don't really have a bucket list. Like I'm pretty young. But I thought about it, I said, well, actually, I do want to go to Antarctica because I've been to every other continent. And so I joke with him, you know, I, I told you from the very beginning that we're going to Antarctica uh and, and we're going so i mean i have to i mean there's not a resort on antarctica is there no really no you take say? a you go on a cruise there oh, are okay. three big cruise ships but you take a cruise from either the south of chile or argentina if we're going from argentina but we'll it takes two days to get across the drake's passage uh and then you're we kind of go along the islands and the peninsula down to the continent over the course of five days and come back so we'll get out we'll go hiking every day it will be there summer so it would be 21 hours of sunlight. The penguins will be hatching. Uh, the whales will be out. A lot of birds will be there. So it's definitely going to be the experience of a lifetime. All right. Well, Kevin Bain, listen, thanks. We appreciate your time today. Fascinating story. Thank you. Uh, you know, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Timothy. This has been great. And thank you for listening. We'll talk again on the next Finance Fridays. You've been listening to Finance Fridays, a GFOA production. This podcast was produced by Dan Zielinski. Our conversation was hosted by Timothy Martin. The original theme music for Finance Fridays was composed by David Cronister. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review your experience. New episodes will release on Fridays. I'm Chris Morrill, the Executive Director of GFOA. We appreciate you joining us.